the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Here we are live again, broadcasting from Georgetown, Texas, with another edition of Chalcedon Q&A and Meet of the Word. I'm Martin Sobretti. I'm the Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation, and these are the times where we take your questions. Uh, we take some ones that were submitted uh, by email first, and then the live questions. So we got about mm, five questions that came in online, and we'll take those first. Hi, Nancy. Good to have you here with us. The first question, it was a pretty tough one, could you please elaborate more on Deuteronomy 25, 1-3? Are there any good resources that delve deeper into this issue? Now, this is the passage which justifies corporal punishment. I'll read it in the, the King James Version first. Pull it up real quick. So we get a bearing on it. If there be a controversy between men, and they come unto judgment, that is, to the court, that the judges may judge them, when they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, and it shall be, if the wicked man, that is the one who has been ruled to be in fault, what the guilty party of the two that are before the judge, uh, is be worthy to be beaten, that the judge may cause him or shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face according to his fault by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. That's the text. Now, several things we should point out here. Uh, the first two verses are actually a single sentence in the Hebrew, so it's rendered a little poorly here. Also, the idea here of uh, is he worthy to be uh, beaten is the phrase son of stripes or a son of beating, similar to a phrase son of death in First uh, Samuel 20, verse 31. So uh, this is a particular phrase means he actually is worthy to be beaten. Now, what happens, of course, is that this, without context, without understanding the, uh, um, the meaning of these terms and the intentions and purposes and restrictions, is often used as an uh, indication how um, horrible biblical law is and medieval, etc., etc., uh, and, and cruel, etc. But this is actually the opposite of cruel. Uh, this is indicative of a restriction, and the judge, uh, it is done with a, a stick, not a whip. Uh, it is done with a stick, and it was done on the back. Proverbs 26, 3 is indicative of this, and other passages. And it was, uh, there was a maximum. In fact, the maximum was such that the Jews, in uh, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, when Paul talks about being stoned and stuff, he says, and I was uh, um, beaten five times, uh, 40 stripes, save one. In other words, 39. Because the Jews said, well, we might miscount. It gets exciting. Maybe they, they didn't do the thing right. But uh, we miscount, then we don't want to hit the 40 limit. So if we back off one, 39 is the maximum amount of stripes or, or um, hits with the stick on the back that could be had. 
Now, the judge has the authority to um, have mitigating circumstances. This occurred in Jewish law, as uh, Rush Tooney points out, where um, if it was an orphan or an alien and or they were guilty, but there was provocation, that's a mitigating circumstance which peels back. Sometimes the punishment was as light as one or two uh, hits with the stick on the back. The, the meeting was not to be um, in a cruel way to demean. It was corrective only. Uh, and it was not to make your brother vile. In other words, if it gets to the point where he's really being brutalized, then we've already violated the law. That's why it has to be done in front of the judge who's monitoring every single step in the process to make sure we don't exceed the threshold that the brother be vile in his eyes, because we want to have restoration as the result of this process. Uh, so is one of the very few places where we actually have an acknowledgement of uh, corporal punishment in Scripture. Uh, and it is uh, structured in a certain way, and it goes against the grain of modern man, who, uh, of course, is going to use this uh, to malign Scripture and its authority, and saying, you know, how could anyone possibly think that this is the right way to do things? Uh, but it has a correction, even in Proverbs 26.3, where it says that it's the whip for the horse, the bridle for the ass, and the rod for the back of the fool. It's indicative that, uh, that that idea of being a son of stripes, a son of beatings, in other words, someone who is born to it, <laughs> born to the rod, as it were, uh, because he simply is transgressing. And so this is certainly more humane. It's designed to be a humane punishment, not a bitter, cruel one. Uh, though the model is similar to the Egyptian model with the stick, it certainly varies from modern uh, approaches, like the Turkish one, which would be 100-plus stripes, or Chinese uh, versions, uh, the biblical version was, again, anywhere from 1 to 39, scaled to the offense. That's one of the interesting points in verse 2. Uh, according to his fault, he shall be beaten before the judge's face according to his fault. In other words, struck according to his fault by a certain number. So again, there was proportionality. If it was a minor offense, or those mitigating circumstances would be smaller. But it was to correction. And what's interesting, as Rashtuni points out, is that they were reading from, uh, during the um, brief period or time during which the uh, punishment was inflicted, and it was a punishment, not a demeaning or a brutalizing, they were reading from uh, a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 28 about how uh, the uh, God's judgment upon Israel is deflected at the national level when we take care of justice at the personal level. Uh, so again, this is done as a judicial thing. The judge is in charge, not the uh, there's no sense of revenge or anything. This is this rather setting things in order and assessing it. And during the process, the judge might determine, uh, I think we've gone to the point, stop. You can stop at any point and say, this is sufficient. This is all that's necessary to deal with what God does but, uh, and give us and deliver us uh, the proper measure. Remember, this is the issue that's laid out in Hebrews 12, that our human fathers chastise us as seemed right unto them. So it could have been too harsh or too lenient. And the question here is the judge has to be monitoring it to make sure it's not harsh, uh, but it also must measure up to the crime with the mitigating factors settled in. So Rushing's discussion is probably one of the better ones uh, out there uh, from a contemporary point of view. In fact, it's interesting to me that he labels that chapter uh, the stable society, indicative that when a society is seeing to individual justice in all the courtrooms, that the curses of Deuteronomy 28 are not inflicted upon it. So because what happens is if you don't uh, follow God's laws, then God will then sit in judgment and, and uh, his judgments then fall on the nation that says, heck with God's laws, we're not interested in them. They're uh, something that we regard as cruel and unusual punishment, say. Uh, 
Also interesting to note that uh, uh, I think Rush Tony bears on this over and over again, and we and bears repeating because we have another question coming up, <laughs> my lucky Sunday, uh, about uh, associations with uh, things. And you know, the point here is that uh, what men judge to be harsh, God judges not to be harsh, but to be beneficial and healing. Uh, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel, we are told in Proverbs, which is to say when they say, oh, no, 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 we need to be this, this, and this to the offender, uh, then, of course, you, you let pass, you don't enforce the law at that point, and now the society itself crumbles. It is no longer stable. It's on a foundation of sand because it believes it knows better than God how to run things. By the way, there's a tremendous incentive not to go to court to deal with something like this. You want to settle on the way if you know that one or the other of you, either you or you're the person that you're contending with in court, is going to be found guilty and potentially have stripes. You know, it's the same reason that children want to avoid uh, corporal punishment too. Um, and proper behavior is the best recipe for that. So there's a sense in which it is... Um, disincentivizes uh, misbehavior and, you know, and also incentivizes uh, settling out of court before we get to the judge. Because the judge is in a position to say, in this particular case, I'm going to order 24 stripes, say, or 24 uh, strikes with a rod on the back. Uh, nowhere does it say the back is um, naked or anything like that. By the way, talking about Paul receiving this punishment five times at the hands of the Jews, that's in Second Corinthians 11, um, that would have meant it had been done properly that he was hauled up into court and someone prevailed against him on a charge that meant that he was worthy of that. Now, the likelihood is he was not because he said he was guiltless before all men. So uh, those stripes, those beatings on Paul were likely done on perjured testimony. Uh, so he didn't, in fact, deserve them, though he considered them the same stripes that Christ received but did not deserve either. And the scourging of the Romans was far more severe than anything that the scripture talks about. The main point here is that these beatings are not to be harsh or severe or inhumane. They are corrective. And they're in the same sense that correcting a child would be corrective. So they're not intended to uh, disable or maim or anything like that, as opposed to um, secular punishments. So we, this seems alien to us because we're so far removed from God's law and we tend to be infected by humanistic ideas concerning this. Um, and they fail to understand that in the Bible there's a restoration of the dignity of the person who has his stripes because he cannot be, uh, cannot be done such, such a way that they would be vile in your eyes, in your brother's eyes. So you see this as something that you'd be doing uh, unto a brother in Israel, uh, a brother of the covenant, another son of the covenant, who's become a son of stripes because of his conduct. But this is part of the restoration process, and he's fully restored and back on his feet afterward and operational. He cannot be such that he has to limp away or cannot work or anything like that. All these are falsifications, and these are all a caricature of what the biblical law says. Remember, uh, some, an atheist is going to quote this law and say, see, you're just beating someone mercy you know, until he can't move again. That's his fiction, and is a useful fiction for the opponents of biblical law because they don't want to understand what the purpose of the law is. They don't want to understand how it's conducted and the intention and the outcome, which is a positive outcome, even for the person who has the beatings. And it's also an outcome that's positive for society at large. So we all have a part to play. Uh, we might uh, have some follow-ups. By the way, he had a couple of follow-ups. He says, is 1 Corinthians 4.21 possibly an echo of this law principle? This is where Paul says, do I come with you uh, with a rod, in other words, in punishment, or with uh, love and, and, and forbearance? 
uh, with meekness, actually, is the way the text reads. So Paul's saying, you know, your, how you're standing with respect to God's requirements will determine whether I come to you smiling or frowning because I'm going to have to uh, re respond in kind for your benefit. I have to do everything to edify you. And if that means I have to come to you with a rod, and that's a meta excuse me, metaphorical rod, not a physical rod, in other words, in a punitive mode like he had been before, such as the uh, situation for 1 Corinthians 5, then that would be it. So there's an echo of it, but it's metaphorical, if you will. It's not a literal rod. Uh, per se at this point, related to church issues. And he also asks, what about Nehemiah 13.25? This is where Nehemiah is correcting them for their associations uh, with the um, foreign women. Again, this is already dealt with 10 years before by Ezra, and these guys snuck back in to these relationships that were forbidden by God's law uh, for them in that place and time. And uh, the the issue there, of course, is that one of the commentators said, had he been weak and effeminate in dealing with this issue because they were had dived back into this sin after ten years of trying to get you know of Ezra prevailing upon them, uh, it would he would have been laughed at. So he took serious steps, just like he would have taken with the uh, merchants, the Canaanites on outside the gates. He says, if you show up here on the Sabbath, I will lay hands upon you. So too, uh, he dealt with uh, judicially in a, in, a, in a punitive way to get these people's attention so that they would lay off the uh, conduct that was going to cause God's curse to come upon Israel as they're trying to rebuild the wall. The last thing you want to do when you're rebuilding God's temple is to uh, spit in God's eye, in which these uh, particular Jews were doing. And uh, Nehemiah took it personal, um, for God's sake. He was consumed with zeal for God's house, and therefore he also struck them and uh, was serious. He, he meant business. Uh, one of the most interesting aspects of the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis in the uh, second book, <coughs> Paralandra. <coughs> All this time, the uh, protagonist figures the way he's going to defeat the uh, enemy, the vicious uh, demonic enemy, is by talking it through, by conversation and argument and debate. Turns out he ended up having to actually get down to a physical fight to, to shut down the enemy. And so, too, it sometimes is that uh, all the other recourses are exhausted, uh, and people only pay attention to that. Now, the main point about Deuteronomy 25.1.3 is that it is a lawful process, and it is conducted lawfully under the judge's eye. The judge is 100% responsible for the outcome. If the punishment were to cause the uh, person being punished uh, to suffer uh, medically, uh, or be uh, reviled in the eyes of his brothers, then that's on the judge, and the judge can be hauled up for that. So the judge is now on the same, remember, there's no respect of persons in Israel under God's law, and under us either. And so were the judge to misgauge that, that's on the judge. And the judge could be liable for stripes as well. So they're going to be very, very careful to make sure they go to the, um, at least as far as, uh, well, the top limit would be they, what they think is, uh, or regard based on assessment, proportionality to the crime, but they would lower it to make sure that they didn't exceed the threshold because the final verses are so important that the brother not seem vile in your eyes. The second we get to that point, uh, we are not following the law that's written in Deuteronomy 25, 1, 2, 3. We are rather um, trying to institutionalize our own vengeance and evil and wickedness toward the other person and taking advantage of it. And that when a judge does that, then we have evil in, in Israel. So believe me, it's not as if these guys are going to gang up on that. The law still applies even to the judge who must monitor and ensure 
that the brother is not excessively struck so that he was harmed in such a way that he could not walk away safely uh, with minimal, um, just essentially trivial things. So there's more of the embarrassment element in it as there would be in the public depilation in uh, Deuteronomy 25, 11, and 12. Okay, I think that covers that a lot. <laughs> more than I'd like to talk about since it's not a pleasant subject, but it's part of God's law and we need to characterize it accurately so the enemies of Christ do uh, are not able to attack it. Uh, we must, must, as Calvin says, shut the mouths of the obstreperous. And that's what we're here to do. Oh, it's interesting. We know that, uh, second question, uh, we know that Jesus fulfilled, I'll just let me finish up the first one, one more, because he talked about wounds of a friend, so legit, legitimate place for corporal punishment in the context of a local Christian community. Not terribly likely. Uh, we we want to have persuasion that the sword of the um, spirit, the word that goes out of the mouth of Christ, is to be the most effectual method. And so the, to the church is reserved fundamentally um, excommunication as the strong, and denial from the table, the strongest measures. Now, the civil magistrate potentially does have this uh, still as a value. Oh, that sunlight came back in again. This can never be rid of it. It's, um, it's a bright hum. So I apologize for the picture being a little washed out, but it will move as uh, we move along here. Should the application be only figurative and or limited to civil magistrates? I believe it's limited to civil magistrates. The church is not given the sword, and it's not given the rod either. Christ, of course, holds the rod of iron, and he strikes the nations with it. Thank you very much. So there's another set of questions. Okay, now back to the next one, which actually ties in slightly with this. We know that Jesus fulfilled the roles of the high priest and the sacrificial lamb. We also know that he is our kinsman redeemer. Is it appropriate to think of Jesus as the fulfillment of the avenger of blood? Well, certainly, when you look at how he appears in Revelation 19:11 following, his robe is dipped in blood, and there's been some dispute whether it's the blood of his own atonement or the blood of his enemies, but in the context, it's the blood of his enemies. So certainly, as the uh, avenger of blood, and we see this also when you think about it in uh, the ninth chapter, let me get this, no, chapter 6 of Revelation, verses 9 and 11, we have the saints under the altar of uh, in the heavens, and they're crying out, How long, O Lord, before you... Uh, avenge us of our enemies, and has given them white robes, and they're told to wait a little season as their brethren run their race. So that uh, indicates that they are, in fact, do have a uh, an avenger of blood, and it is the Christ, um, because he holds the keys of uh, death and Hades, in, and they, he controls them. They're his, and he's in charge of it. So yes, now, uh, this is in terms of Christ being the judge, uh, and judgment being given unto him. But there is a sense in which even this capacity, uh, Christ fulfills it. He's also our refuge and our city of refuge as well, and all these other wonderful things. The, the world cannot contain all the books that can be written about Christ, and nor can our language contain all the roles that he plays on our behalf. So wonderful is he. All right, three more questions, and then we'll dig into the live ones, which I see are accumulating here. There have been a number of programs discussing the negative aspects of cults, and specifically the Jehovah's Witness group. Some of the criticisms levied against the JWs by former members are that they follow the Mosaic Law, specifically with regard to fornication and homosexuality. The media loves to give voice to this. What is the best way to not have theonomy painted with the same brush and labeled cultic? So this is a perennial problem. Let's take it a step over to eschatology. There's three major eschatologies. There's premillennial, millennial and postmillennial. 
and all of them have had false groups glom onto them. So the premillennialists, again, Jehovah's Witnesses, they like premillennialism, uh, and so do other the cults, um, and, and semi-cults or quasi-cults, because some are in motion and some are not. Some are digging in their heels and their falsehoods. Uh, amillennialism is adopted by the Roman Catholicism and the um, Neo-Orthodox, and postmillennialism is adopted by the social gospel folks like uh, Rauschenbach and the others. So each of them, each Whatever view is true, it can be appropriated by a false group. That's just the truth. And so there's no safe haven to say, I want to avoid all guilt by association. You're out of luck because uh, everyone's going to copycat something. So uh, the trick here is simply to say, uh, without adopting the Jehovah's Witness position on the key things, Christology, etc., uh, we they happen to have some truth to say about X, Y, or Z. Uh, it's not because the Jehovah's Witnesses that they hit the truth. It was like the uh, blind squirrel finding the nut, if it, as it were. Now, what happens, of course, is that this becomes useful from a JW position because they can point to a verse that modern antinomian Christianity neglects or says isn't valid, and then they can use this as a tool to evangelize to the cult. Now, if Christians were fully theonomic, there would be no room for a, a grabbing any of these uh, doctrines and claiming, see, uh, the church is lawless. The church is, uh, the so-called Christian church out there is not where you want to be. You want to be over here in the kingdom hut or whatever they call it for the Jehovah's Witnesses, kingdom hall. <laughs> the uh, the kingdom hall, as they call it, uh, because we're faithful, we believe these things, and the Christians who claim they believe the whole Bible cover to cover do not. So it's those who hold the, uh, the sanctity of the whole counsel of God that are in the best position to counter the abuse of a doctrine. Finally, it should be pointed out that the area of dispute with any of these false groups needs to be the major areas of the Christology in particular, doctrine of God, doctrine of the Trinity. This is where they fall down. John, the apostle, goes out of his way in 1 John to indicate exactly what the essence is of Antichrist, the denial that Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came in the flesh. When you die, deny the Incarnation, that is antichristic, and that is the essence of the most severe uh, thing. So that is a full-blown heresy at that point. I have a book on my shelf I always mention once in a while here by Harold O.J. Brown called Heresies. And the primary heresies are all Christological. I am, maybe Ground Control can put up a notice to the effect that we had a uh, at Chalcedon, we had Book of the Month Club discussion about the Foundations of Social Order by Rashtuni. I led that with, uh, along with Andrew Schwartz, and that gives you a good idea of what the serious heresies were, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes you simply cannot evade uh, a cult. It's like a passage, I think it's in Hosea, where it says, it's as if a man fled from a lion, and he walked in and he encountered a bear, or he... Uh, fled from a snake, put his uh, got in his house, put his hand on the wall, and a scorpion bit it. Sometimes you can't evade uh, association with a cult because the cults are clever enough, and there are enough of them that they can grab little pieces of biblical truth. And so, if, and if you call on the carpet simply because there's this association, now we live in an era where it doesn't take much in the way of association to say, "Hey, I think that trains should run a time." Really, are you a follower of Mussolini? We shouldn't listen to you. You like Mussolini because he got the trains running on time. So it comes to the point where no good thing goes unpunished and unassociated with something bad. Uh, that is not going to happen perpetually. The, these are called social lies. And Deuteronomy 32 says eventually there will be an explosion of social lies 
the tongue of the rash man shall utter rash things. The illiberal and the churl will utter churlish things. They will not be able to hide behind these kind of language twists that are, dominate our parlance and our conversation and our concourse today, which is all corrupted as it is. Um, when we talk about a strategy of subversion, you start with language and start with how we can communicate, and we block people from communicating certain ideas in certain ways. And this is a humanistic way to control everything starting with language. Uh, ground control perhaps could find my article on um, contamination, uh, worldview contamination regarding language. It's, it was published in the Faith for All of Life. Okay. So that's, that's the point there, is that there's no safe place to do And yes, the media will love to associate anything. Uh, you have a Facebook friend who is a this. He's a, uh, a sympathizer of that or holds to this false view. You can't. So now you have to purge your Facebook list because people are going to just churn through and say, you know, this person actually is a Roman Catholic or this person is that. Uh, so a uh, friend of wine bibbers and, and prostitutes, we've heard it before. All right, this, uh, fourth question out of five. During the interim between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost, was there no presence of the Holy Spirit on earth? Or was it just the same as during the Old Testament times? Essentially, the um, Isaiah 59, 21, uh, Warfield's uh, rendering, also J. Alexander's, talks about the Spirit of God being pent in, like a straightened stream that's not allowed to explode yet. Uh, and it explodes at Pentecost and blows forward. Now, that doesn't mean, as Warfield says, that there weren't pre-libations, that is, uh, tastes of it, that the, the Spirit was present, but not in its fullness. It wasn't until Pentecost that now the task of converting the world of falling upon all flesh has begun in earnest. So there's a distinction between the days of waiting and the days of preparation and the days of fulfillment when the paraclete, the comforter, comes, and he will convict the world of sin and righteousness. The world was not yet to be convicted of sin and righteousness because the Holy Spirit was not in that capacity. So between those two times, you certainly had the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, in the disciples, but not in the strength and power that was to come. This is obvious from the fact that Peter uh, confessed the Christ, and it was not flesh and blood that revealed it to him. So if it's not flesh and blood, then it's spirit is the only alternative there. So a good doctrine of the Holy Spirit would account for these uh, transitions and these changes in economy, as we say, as the, uh, theologians. So, yeah, there was a presence of the Holy Spirit on earth, but it was still in the preparatory purpose until Pentecost, when now things have changed. And then the promised comer, he says, it's expedient, and this is very important, instructive for everyone to hear, it's expedient for me to go that I can send him, that, that he can do his work of convicting the entire world of sin and righteousness. Why do I mention this verse? Because the modern premillennial dispensational position is it's expedient for the Holy Spirit to get out of town and for Christ to come, because the Holy Spirit's not cutting it. So we regard this from our perspective as something of an insult upon the name of the Holy Spirit, because his mission was sent to convert the world uh, and to cover the world and to be poured out upon all flesh. And, and, and he is as omnipotent as the Son of the Father. He doesn't lack for power or authority. You get short shrift, in other words, and that's our fault for not having a strong doctrine of the Holy Spirit and understanding what he's all about and the mission that he was sent for. So when they say, well, he's the restrainer and God's going to take him out of the way so that things can get back on track, that's, again, insulting. I like the way that Spurgeon put it when he said, the Holy Spirit would not suffer the imprecation to rest upon his holy name that he was unable to save the world or convert the world. And so that's interesting. That's considered a curse or an imprecation upon God's name that he was unable to save the world on, on the spirits. 
So let's make sure we lift the spirit up and understand what he's here to do. He has a major task before him and he's in the middle of it right now as we speak. And we trust in him because he dwells in us and all who name the name of Christ and depart from iniquity. Okay, the fourth, final question is a tough one because I don't really have a good solid answer to it uh, that I can actually speak publicly. Let's put it that way. Is there something we should be doing to help the persecuted church in China other than pray? Uh, I can certainly tell you the kind of things you should be praying for, not only for their support and to God come alongside them, but also to be praying uh, with respect to the leaders of China that they would stop molesting the church because they don't recognize that upon all the glorious defense, the biggest, strongest defense for China would be a strong Christian presence in China because then God will protect China too. Uh, it's significant that China is one of the few nations uh, not surrounding Israel that's actually mentioned in the book of Scripture. In Isaiah, it talks about the gospel, the word of God, the light extending all the way to the land of Shin, or Sin, which is where we get the word Sino-Soviet relations, the land of China, way off to the far east. So there's actual uh, discussion, and uh, J. J. Alexander and other scholars have pointed this out. China is mentioned in Scripture as a point where the light of God is going to definitely shine and brought into the fullness of day. In the meantime, we should pray that God hastens that day, that God um, works upon the hearts of the rulers, that there would be peaceful rule, and uh, that, of course, God's going to break the um, everything that tries to break his church. They will fall upon that rock, and the rock will fall upon them. And so, like they say, the Church of God's the anvil that wears out many hammers, and that'll be the Chinese hammer as well. I have other comments that I'd have to make privately because of the nature of the kind of things that uh, we're involved with. So uh, that's going to be as far as <coughs> I'm going to take it today. But that they should be in your prayers and that you, if you have a cap capability to assist them in any way, shape, or form, please do so. But um, it's unfortunate that the Chinese rulership uh, regards Christians because they kind of, they're not nuanced in how they approach it. So they believe they're all one, there's only one kind of Christian, which is the troublesome kind. Um, and sometimes, although Christianity is marked by certain, a certain cult or branch of Christianity over there, and so if they break certain rules or, or create ideological problems, uh, then the rulers aren't ready. This is kind of a case where the new wine is uh, wreaking havoc on the old wineskin, and the wineskin bites back. Okay. I'm going to scroll back to the beginning and see what our questions are. Doug? Yes, I'm good to be back. It was a fantastic wedding last December 15th, my oldest son, and I'm very pleased to have been able to be a significant part of that. Caning. Well, I don't know if it's a cane that we use, uh, Bill, but uh, yes, again, the judge has to have it done in front of him. He, judge, that's the point. Is the judge can't just say, take him away to be caned. He says it has to be done in front of him to monitor it. And so modern ideas are very, very different. Uh, Pontius Pilate says, take Christ away to be scourged. No, that's not anything close to the biblical model at all. It is a caricature and a falsification of what the Bible requires. And uh, Now, that's why you see these uh, shadows, if you will, these corrupted shadows of biblical doctrine. Uh, every biblical truth has various perversions of it that float around there, and you can kind of see the echo of the biblical truth in it, but it's so corrupted and perverted and harmful compared to the biblical thing, which is designed for edification and the construction of the individual and the society, and the promotion of uh, biblical liberty, Christian liberty, uh, it, it is almost unrecognized by, unrecognizable anymore, the way humanism in its various brutal forms uh, subverts biblical doctrines and truths, including penology, the doctrine of... Uh, punishment. Let's see here. Let me pick up 
pin this comment by Michael Robert Dunia. I appreciate your continuation of Rosa's John Rastoni's work of defending theonomy, Christian reconstruction, and biblical law against all critics. Well, at least those as many critics have um, uh, come up, I've come upon. So let's see how I get to the next uh, cycle. I want to finish that question. I'm going to unpin it. Uh, Ground control, can you unpin that thing? If I hit the finish button, it's going to kill this communication, and we're going to be over. And I want to close that out, and it won't let me. We can unpin it. Nope. So I can't see any other questions. Oh, well, here it is. There it goes. Okay. Here, let me unpin it. Close it. And there it is. Now ah, free. Free of it. Diane, good to be back. Okay, Bill asks a question. We pin that one. Is there any mechanism in the law, Bill Evans asks, whereby corporal punishment, as discussed earlier, could be substituted for restitution at the discretion of the victim in cases where the offender is unable to repay? No, it's not at the discretion of the victim. The judge is in charge of this. In fact, the um, there has to be... Uh, the proportionality is important, and it, you cannot really substitute one for the other, but there's also limitations on restitution as well. Acts 3.21 tells us that the, uh, heavens contain Christ, Jesus, until the time of the restitution of all things. So restitution is built into the fabric of everything that's going forward. But if someone says, um, I want to excuse you, you know, the judge says, you need to pay me this because it was fraudulently obtained, I cannot actually tell you, you don't have to pay me the restitution, keep the money. That is not allowed. In fact, the Bible says that the proceeds that are false again cannot remain with you <laughs> any more than wages can remain with you the next night that uh, you were supposed to pay somebody who worked for you. They're not to remain with you to the morning. So the same thing, you cannot benefit from having done something fraudulent, say. So at that point, there's a verse, uh, I believe that's in Leviticus 5 or 6, that says the, if you cannot pay because a person says, I'm not going to take the money, sorry, I'm not going to take the restitution, um, you have to then give it to the, at this point, the priest, and that goes into uh, the coffers of the temple for um, remediation of um, poverty and things like that. But it cannot remain with you because it's unrestituted if it stays with you, and then you have that over your head. So you must get rid of that. But a judge can be um, show compassion and mercy and work things out in terms of how best to do restitution. Uh, so it, it can be a long time coming. But Christ is here to see the restitution is done. So now Bill's question had to do with unable to pay, and my point is a little bit different because I said you can the victim cannot re absolve the um, uh, criminal and say you don't have to pay, pay me the back the money you stole, you can keep it. That money cannot stay with the criminal, which is an important point that is often missed. The scripture provides then for the money going somewhere else. Okay, now see if I can unpin this. It'll let me unpin it. There we go. I swear this is a different format than before. Okay, Felipe Macedo. Was Restoni a libertarian, and what's your view on the ideal form of civil government? Uh, actually, I've written on this topic insofar as that I believe uh, and Dr. Restuni and Dr. Fugate and I all hold that the civil tax on Scripture is the half-shekel of silver per male head of household 20 years or up, and that's it. And that works out to under $600 million for all taxes for federal, state, <laughs> and local government. 
Uh, and that makes for a government that's about 11,000 times smaller than it currently is. I worked out the actual numbers for 2016 or 2015 is, um, censuses and calendar years and, and the budgets for all 50 states. I total them all up in the federal budget, and we show up about 11,000 times smaller government. You see, if uh, self Christian self-government is small, then government grows to fill that gap. And so, and also you have to pay for it, and government is incredibly uh, inefficient. So of that uh, 11,000 times more you spend, you may be getting 300 times more government out of it, but the rest is all excess and waste going to pay for the bureaucratic overhead um, to feed the beast. And that's money that the Christian family should have. So Christian families would have an extra $68,000 a year uh, each on average if we weren't paying the government this money. Uh, it certainly be less uh, debt because this um, obviously they can't collect it all, so sometimes they accumulate it as debt. But the point is it's there. And so uh, we are so willing to support the capital B beast of the American civil government that uh, we turn our own families aside, we put them in the public schools, and we do terrible things uh, that persist in feeding the beast as opposed to uh, setting forth Christian self-government and alternatives. And the only way to get rid of that big beast is to set in motion at the same time you're paying for that, the alternatives that people will gravitate to once they see them. You see? <coughs> It'd be like to say, ten men will seize hold of the skirt of a Jew because they'll say, God's with you. Same thing now. If people are doing what God wants, ten men will seize your, your shirt or your, your toga, whatever you're wearing, and say, we're going to go with you because God is with you. We can tell that God's blessing what you're doing. And so that we've kind of had to have that explosion of obedience and we're far, far away from it. So the ideal form of civil, uh, Christian civil government puts uh, civil government at the low end. Western you always say the primary government is Christian self-government under God through his law. And then the family government and school government and vocational. And he puts civil government sixth or seventh in the list as the least important. And this follows because it gets so little cash under biblical law. You don't feed that monster beast. You don't feed the kitty that turns into a lion. It stays a kitten. Now, there are those who say, uh, who say well, this form of minarchism, which is a very, very small government, um, why not take the final step and throw it all out and have anarchy? Well, that's not what the Bible requires. So those folks have to then attack um, the poll tax uh, that Dr. Fugate and Dr. Reshtuni have written on and defended so profoundly and so well. And I think that's that would be the only point. Now, the other people, the other side says, that's not enough money to run things. We need to have, we need to feed the kitty and have this big monster uh, government fat and happy up there in Washington and the various state capitals running our lives for us. Um, because we don't know how to do Christian self-government. And uh, Christian liberty is premised on self-government under God. So if you're not promoting that, then the alternative is external government, and it comes down hot and heavy, and it's a big hammer, and you deserve it. If you're willing to um, not put in place the alternatives. Now, this is not a rebellion or a tax revolution like that. It's put in place the alternatives, because the way to shrink them is to grow self-government and to then put into place institutions like the homeschooling and the Christian schools. Um, uh, if the poor tithe were taken care of, we would not need to spend all this money on the welfare system. I've said it many, many times over and over, lectures across the country, even in front of hostile audiences. Deuteronomy 15.4 says that if you obey those, obey those God's laws, you shall have no more poor among you. Uh, and the laws are the ones in Deuteronomy 14 about the poor tithe, which is amounts to about 3.3% percent of your net increase amortized uh, and that would reduce poverty and as I pointed out Israel actually got rid of all poverty during the Maccabean era they had a surplus at the temple in um, 
Jerusalem. And there was actually the amount of the talents, the gold and the silver in it, was actually notated in the Maccabean records. And the only reason they could have a surplus is there was no more poor people to give it to. However, as with other things that occurred after the Maccabean War, Israel backslid. And by the time Jesus is walking around, we have people like Lazarus uh, and the rich man. We have the most particularly the poor woman, the widow, who throws in two mites. It's all she has. Why is she so poor? When one reason is, it's in Mark 10, wind that back a bit, to the rich young ruler who shows up. What must I do to be saved? Jesus enunciates several things, and one of them is not in the Ten Commandments. He says, thou shalt not defraud, epistoresis. Thou shalt not defraud, which is to defraud by not paying the poor tithe. This is one of the primary definitions of that. The man protests, well, I've done all these from my youth. And Jesus said, no, you lack one thing. One of the things I mentioned, you lack. You need to go sell all you have and give it back to the poor whom you defrauded, because uh, that's what it would take to have restitution, fourfold restitution, to give back to the poor and then follow me. And that man refused to do it. And then we encounter a victim of that man's refusal to obey biblical law regarding the poverty, which is the, the widow and her two mites. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, he knew what to do. He says, I will restore fourfold whatever I have defrauded anyone with. So one case is good, the tax collector. The rich young ruler who claimed he would, who wanted to be interested in salvation wanted it on his terms and did not want to follow God's law. In uh, Isaiah 1, no, sorry, I think it's the third chapter. In Isaiah, he uses the phrase, uh, grinding the faces of the poor. Is Isaiah 3.15. And so that's the text which tells us what it happens when you don't follow the poor tithe, when you don't allow them to glean, and you don't uh, provide the poor tithe as laid down in Deuteronomy 14. Again, a wonderful book on this topic is Tithing and Dominion by uh, Dr. Rushtuni and Edward Powell. Let's see. Let me look at the question. Well, Rushtuni, a libertarian. Well, he would be a... Um, he believed in Christian liberty because a, a standard libertarian would not have any, um, he, they would uh, absolutize the non-aggression principle and therefore have nothing to say about moral matters such as prostitution and whatnot. And so there's a certain point where the uh, libertarians and the uh, Christians would have to part some company on moral principles. Um, and also we would say that God requires a certain amount of civil government because that's what was set aside, that half shekel of silver was set aside to run the courts and see that they run functionally and properly. Everything else can be done by uh, private contracts. So a lot of work has been done that's of value, and we see value in what uh, libertarians have written, without necessarily buying the whole package, which tends to be tends to be atheistic. There are Christian libertarians, and there are libertarian Christians. Turns out there's a difference. I'm not sure why there is, but I've, it's been argued that they're two different animals. But if I was going to talk about um, privatizing highways and roads, I would grab book by Walt, Dr. Walter Block at Loyola University off the shelf back there, and that'd be the text that says, here's why it would work, and here's why it would reduce um, death on the roads, the carnage on the roads, the red asphalt would stop if you did it and privatized it, because when the government sets up roads, <laughs> boom, uh, then they say these deaths are inevitable, it's just the way it is, And uh, if but private companies, they would say too that the safety of the roads and the roads would not be a factor, and they would take personal responsibility for every pothole, every bad curve, everything that, every uh, deviation from uh, proper thing, et cetera. So the things that private government, private citizens would do to reduce the death rate that the civil government is going to drag its feet on. By the same token that the FDA drags its feet on approving a drug for safe use, and they don't mind the silent victims that are killed because the drug's not available yet because they're erring on the side of caution. So, so was Rushdoony a libertarian? He was, after a fashion, 
but not all the way to the program of the libertarians such as Rothbard, etc. But he had sympathy to what they had to, what they had to say because they were onto the fact that the state was our enemy, our enemy of the state, to use the phrase. Uh, I think Knock wrote that. Okay, thank you for that ground control. Roberto asks, let's see if I can see the whole thing. I'll have to pin it to see it, I guess. I would love to see a return to public whippings and executions to show the fear of lawless behavior rightfully captured on the shoulders of those found guilty for capital offenses. So a capital offense is simply an, uh, an execution. It nowhere says in Deuteronomy 25.123 that that is a public whipping. Or a public, it's not even a whip, by the way. It's, 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 it's the, the rods or the stripes are only before the judge. That's the only requirement the judge must monitor it. Whether it's public or not is not specified. So, uh, and remember, we don't want to have it, the brother seem vile in the eyes of his neighbor. So, if the second we're rejoicing in something like that, then of course the victim or the person who's being uh, um, getting the receiving the rods is becoming vile in our eyes, and we should rethink our things. And if the judge detects that, he's going to stop the proceedings at that point, saying we're approaching this with the wrong mindset, not a restorative mindset. Is the one area where I think Bible the Bible agrees with some modern notions. Um, it's punitive, but it's punitive to a goal. It's not punitive for its own sake, but punitive unto restoration. And in the same sense, uh, there's a reversal of our fortune, if not, you know, maybe use the word fortune, but a reversal of our situation. By his stripes, we are healed. So there's a healing purpose of the stripes. But normally we are to be healed by our own stripes, receiving the due punishment in our own person, just like the person on the cross hanging us to Christ said, we're receiving what was due to us. We deserve to be up here. And to him it was morally healing because he had to recognize his own corruption and told the truth about himself and testified and witnessed and confessed properly before Christ, right next to him in fact. But that's not true for everyone. So we need to make sure our priorities are, are right. Um, I, I, I do think it's appropriate that we uh, recognize that public offenses need public um, punishment insofar as and that's why I think a lot of what the government does, say, uh, for instance, Edward Snowden were to be repatriated back to the United States for punishment, they're going to hide him away somewhere. We're not going to see him in a long time. We're not going to know what's going on. So transparency is important. And the Jewish courts had transparency. If someone wanted to go uh, be part of see that, or the family wanted to be there during the uh, administration of the 1 to 39 stripes, certainly it seems to me the judge could say, yes, you can be there. The Christ family, they asked to come closer to the, witness the crucifixion. They were. Okay, let me see if I can un, unpin that. I guess you have to hold it longer. Now, of course, we we should love righteousness. and we, If you cannot love the good without hating the evil, and the evil is not abstract, it is in persons, it's, you know, a lying mouth and a lying tongue, these are actually embodiments of individuals. So uh, we get this sense from, obviously, the precatory psalms, but also Psalm 37, I think, also gives a good balance. Thank you for that. All right, how do we challenge a Mark Michael Robert Dunia has another question. I can all pin that. Doop, doop, doop. And open it up. How can we challenge the antinomianism, pessimism, and pietism of the American churches today who criticize biblical law, theonomy, and Christian reconstructionism? Well, you can do it two ways. You can do the theoretical, or you can do the practical. The benefit of the practical is Christ even appeals to this. He said, by the, your good works, they shall glorify God. So if people are operating under a biblical law, say someone like, um, who am I thinking of? This book's right on the shelf behind me, but I can't knock the camera over to go get it. George Grant. 
does some amazing things with poverty, say. Um, people acknowledge that and say, well, there's something to be said for that, right? Because now it is that light on the hill. It's the salt of the earth showing forth its saltness. And so people will follow after that. They Remember, this is what the end game is in Isaiah 2, verse 3, right? Um, they'll say, come, let us go up together into the house of the Lord of hosts. Um, and uh, he will teach us out of his law. So there's a magnetic pull when the law of God is preached. I think this is the big failure of modern evangelicalism, is that they're missing one of the found great tools that God has given to awaken the hearts of the regenerate and bring them in and pull them in, which is the law of God. Because it has a magnetic pull, and it's described there in Isaiah 2, 3, uh, 2 verses 2, 3, 4. Okay, let's see, get that verse. In fact, according to Isaiah 42, 4, the islands are waiting for God's law. They're anxiously, they need it, and we're depriving them of it because we're teaching antinomian garbage as opposed to the truth. And so until such time as we uh, play along here and do what God requires, yet all nations shall flow unto it, and many people shall go and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So you see, because of the propagation of God's law, the gravitates and the people come and say, Come, let's go hear what the law has to say to us. And the law is made for man. Man is made to walk in the law. And uh, this does not in any way, shape, or form diminish the gospel, which is the good news that the penalty of the law has been removed and given us a new life to walk in what God's requirements are, where the blessings are going to be found. God does not uh, cause us to want to, uh, I think Calvin said it best, he doesn't clean us so that we can immerse ourselves in fresh dirt, right? <laughs> and so the law of God is kind of a wonderful barrier to that, and also explains what God requires of us personally, God requires of us as families and as nations. Uh, and also all forms of justice, starting with monetary policy. People don't realize how often money is talked about in Scripture because um, a biblical sound currency, which is um, not a diverse way to measure it, it's fluctuating, it's not an abomination, you use it, then it means all construction, everything that you're building in your society is built on, s on the rock, as opposed to the shifting sand of fiat currencies, which can be expanded at the whim of a stroke of a pen and change of a digit on a computer program. So... I think if we, uh, you can always have those debates on exegesis, and I think we ought to because there will be some who will be won over by that. But our deeds will speak louder than our theology will. So if we're actually putting in place biblical solutions to things, then that, even in a small place, better to have God's law observed well in two square miles over here than poorly in 100 square miles. Because this will have a gravitational effect, a magnetic effect. People pull and want to see it, and they will act according to it. Pietism, of course, is a whole different ballgame, because now they've substituted uh, themselves and their own personal holiness as the highest goal, as opposed to what God requires of a society, and they, as members of it, insult in it. So that's a problem, too. Okay, so we unpin. Okay, here we go. Josh Wall has a question. Unpin it. Does God require a priority of a family side between a man and woman's family when it comes to decision-making? For example, choosing who to leave an inheritance to or who to support with help if you have to decide between the two sides or even who to live near and spend more time with. 
Well, that is troublesome. Uh, if I had to answer this last part of who to stay in time with, remember, it's the husband who's supposed to leave and cleave. <laughs> so technically, you'd have to favor being closer to the wife's uh, family if I had to use that text as my sole evidence. So it, it is not um, as cut and dried as one might always think. And you'll notice that um, Isaac is notorious for having favored the guy who, the better cook versus the godly son. <laughs> he makes good venison, and I'm not going to, the blessing that I'm supposed to give, I'm not going to give to to Jacob. Well, the wife overthrew that, and wisely so, um, because dad was out, of, out to lunch on that point. So, all that to say, uh, we have examples in scripture where the women did the right thing over and against the husband's willfulness most extreme example is Abigail and her worthless Nabal husband, where had she not intervened, hubby would be dead. And she'd have been widowed the hard way versus widowed God's way. So it's a complex question. So is there a priority between the two family sides? The um, Another point here is during the marriage vows, because I just went through it with my son, is that the father and the mother, in this case it was the father of the, of the bride, giveth the, her, his daughter into marriage, into the new relationship. So the new relationship trumps all the old ones at that point. So his claim is somewhat limited at that point because he has publicly done this act uh, and to create a new you know, society within the new family. So these are all factors that come into play. I think if there's a, if there's a dispute in a family, it would be wise to acquire some potential um, pastoral counsel on that uh, from someone that you trust, both parties trust. You can't just say, I'm going to go cherry pick a preacher that's going to agree with me and, and tell my wife what's what. <laughs> that's not the way to pull this off. Uh, and it's not going to be respected and it's not going to be honored and you're going to create more friction that way. Um, plus, there's also this, that um, the relationship between a husband and wife is that you prefer the other before yourself. So it would seem to me that if I was looking at the same situation, I would say, I'm going to put her above myself in this question. And this, of course, is Christ-like in the extreme. Uh, it can hardly be gainsaid unless there are other factors at work here. So all this to say, we can always do the straightforward answer. It's always the husband, blah, blah, blah. But I'm seeing so many exceptions to the rule that shows that it's a nuanced question and you have to shape the answer to the circumstances. Now, the one area where I think there is some clarity is on the question of inheritances. Inheritances must go to the godly seed. You cannot say, well, I want um, my brother-in-law over here, or, or, or uh, my, um, yeah, my, my brother has a son, uh, my nephew, to get half of our inheritance when he dies. And you say, well, he's a profligate drunkard, drug lord or something. I'm not gonna. So at that point, the other spouses are going to push back, rightly saying, no, we capitalize the godly seed. If they're all equally godly, then, of course, you have parity, and then you would likely capitalize all of them fairly equally, uh, except unless they wanted to apply primogeniture, their principle that the oldest firstborn son gets a double portion. But that actually means they have double responsibility for the family backward, too. It's not just, hey, I got some money. No, it doesn't work that way in biblical law. With that becomes additional responsibility as the firstborn. If they're not meeting that responsibility, then it goes to someone else. And it certainly was not the case with Reuben and the children of um, uh, Israel, Jacob. It was the fourth-born Judah that tended to be the good guy. So 
you you have to take all this in terms of where things change. In fact, this question of the priority of the tribes, look at the order that they were born in, in the book of Genesis, and then look at the sequence of the, of the um, um, census of the tribes of Israel listed out in the book of uh, Revelation. I think it's the seventh chapter. has uh, a list, uh, it, it's a um, census for all the tribes. The order is deliberate, and it is not the birth order. It is in this covenantal order. So one could argue if there's a covenantal order, then you could, in fact, um, shape the uh, inheritance to prefer the one who was uh, had ten, five talents turned into ten, and the one who had one talent turned into two. Or, but, but if someone's burying the talent, then we're gonna, even what he has is going to be taken away, and that would include the inheritance. So on the question of inheritance, you always capitalize the... Um, the godly seed. You could, in principle, say there'll be a small flat stipend, $10,000 to the others, um, but that prevents, that. that's kind of, in, and explain why it's so small, as opposed to the person who gets a lion's share because they're faithful. You capitalize the kingdom of God at every step, including your inheritance, and you, and you do everything you can to prevent the government from taking half of that because it's not your son. <laughs> it's kind of um, on a different picture, downside slope. Okay. So I think that much as I can say on that topic. Uh, I'm going to ask Ground Control to let me know how we're doing on time because I have no conception of it right now. Could you explain further this difference between your view and Gary North's view on the victim's role? What kind of hermeneutic do you have versus what North has? I'll have to explore that. I know that um, Kyle Shepard... Uh, is fond of what Dr. North says and um, on victims' rights, etc., and uh, plans to see if he can get the right to uh, incorporate some chapters of that into the next journal of Christian Liberty, the one they're working on on the topic of abuse. Um, and uh, I'll, I'm going to be the supervising editor, and I'll verify that it's kosher. And certainly, if, if it's in the um, ballpark, it should be presented. If it's way off in the field, that, that could be a problem. But Dr. North, I think, is uh, going to be a more solid guide on this and show nuances that other scholars will not and others have missed because he certainly walked through the entire law of God in terms of application. And areas where he and I disagree are relatively small as opposed to large areas of agreement with Dr. North. So uh, I cannot articulate today what my differences are until I see exactly what Kyle wants to, uh, to print in the journal. But that's going to be an interesting point that comes up. All right, so next question. Let me scroll down and make sure. Five minutes to go. Goodness, thank you. So these would like to be the last questions. Roberto, the reason we have the current godless government is because we have robbed God of his tithe. That is very, very true. Uh, we will get the government you deserve. The scripture says, like people, like priests. I think that's in Hosea, if I'm not mistaken. But the principle is that you do get the government that you deserve. And uh, we richly deserve to be ruled by buffoons and clowns and people on the take. Hosea 4.8 says that they, the leaders... Uh, they eat up the sins of my people, which means that they benefit from the people violating God's law, and they're not going to do a thing to change that because they benefit and capitalize on it. So there's no incentive for them to change it. Any more than the Israelites, the rulers of Israel, had any intention of really changing all those money changers and getting rid of them on the temple grounds because they were uh, benefiting from it. So though they knew they should have cleansed the temple, uh, they got all upset when Jesus did it on his own authority, <coughs> which he had every right to do because he was consumed with zeal for his father's house, and he had turned it, house of prayer, into a den of thieves. So, too, we have a situation where we have a den of thieves operating in Washington and all our state capitals, and usually even in our local governments. Um, and it's 
criminal because God's law is slacked, and when God's law is slacked, then something it's there's a judgment built into that. That's how gonna be our last verse. It's out of Malachi, I believe. The last verse of the old book of the old testament. Let's see if I got it here. It's actually in the, a little bit different thing, but the, the point of us in what our and Christian should be, you mean the Levites, sands of the season lumber, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So people who are Christians are to be the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way, ye have caused many to stumble at the law, ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. And there we have it in a nutshell. We're only applying part of the law, the part that suits us. The smorgasbord approach, I'll pick and choose what I'm going to obey, and the rest I'll say that's not for us today. And therefore we are made contemptible and we deserve it richly. Uh, it's our lot in life. When you turn away from God, God turns away from you too. But God will keep his covenant and he will spoon feed you in the wilderness for 40 years while your bones bleach and then your children may be entering into the promised land and you might not. So we are persuaded of better things in Chalcedon's mission, of course, is to propagate the whole counsel of God because that's the only way that you're going to be guiltless of the blood of all men because you've not failed to proclaim unto them the entire counsel of God, every scrap of scripture that applies and all of it does apply. Thank you for listening, and uh, I'm glad we got back on track here after a two-week respite. Um, I pray that the uh, coming holidays you are mindful of the things of God during this time because we certainly have a blur of commercial activity and uh, pay no attention to it. Pay it no mind. What's important is uh, the Christ and uh, what he has done for us and what he is continuing to do for us. All right, yes, so we have a Book of the Month Club coming up. Sign up for it. Uh, let me see, I'm going to pin that because I can't see the whole thing. And uh, Law and Liberty, excellent book. And I think Chris Zimmerman is going to be uh, working with that wonderful uh, supporter of Chalcedon's up in the uh, Pacific Northwest. I think you'll be blessed by what he had to say. So sign up while you still can, and it's still time to read the book. It's a short one. So blessings to all. We will see you all next Sunday as the new year is about to begin. God bless. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.